On this edition of the program, we dive deep into the data. Biden's approval. Who is moving and shaking now that Pence is out of the GOP primary and we peer into swing states and general election data for 2024. Also, a conversation about Joe Biden's executive order on AI and the intersection between technology and government. That's with Eric Geller. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for November 3rd. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. Let's go ahead and dig into some polling for you. We will start with Joe Biden's approval rating. Reminder that Joe Biden's approval rating went upside down in the fall of 2021 that was tied to the Afghanistan withdrawal. We've never really come close to it coming back to equilibrium. Uh, There's only really been different varying degrees of Joe Biden being up and down. The lowest he went on the real clear politics rating was in July of 2022. That was around when we started talking about whether or not there was going to be a red wave. And that's partly why, because inflation started to hit and we did not really get great explainers from the Biden administration as to why that was happening. Let's let's remind ourselves that initially it was transient. (laughs) It wasn't going to uh, stick around. Well, it, it has stuck around. And as we speak to you this week. In the dawning of November, Joe Biden is at his lowest approval rating since that August. So not as deep as he was in July but he is at a 40.6 approval rating. He has only in that deepest, darkest valley had his real clear politics average drop below 40%. He is at 40.6% now. What is at an all-time high or close to it is his disapproval rating. His disapproval rating is currently at 56%. Uh, that ain't great. And if you look back here into the data through October, we're looking at 55, 56, 59, 50, 60, 53, 56, 56, 56, 58, 57. So this is not an outlier. Joe Biden is polling around the, the, the mid 50s and has been all month. In terms of disapproval, it's a pretty high disapproval. Uh, We are we are at around the point that Trump was at in terms of his disapproval. His approval is a little higher. It shows the Democrats are sticking with him. But when you get into the 30s, things start to get a little shaky. So as we sit right now in the beginning of November, moving into our one year countdown to this election could be better, could be better for Joe. Here's the other problem is that normally when there is an international conflict, you get what is referred to as a rallying around the flag. Joe Biden did have a rebound in his approval rating at the beginning of the Ukraine war because it was looked at as him being ahead of it. There were dummies like me on a little listen to podcast were saying that the State Department was crying wolf, that they were a little bit too 
enthused with the idea that Putin would attack Ukraine. Well, they were right. And by the public, they were rewarded for it. However, not only is this Israel-Gaza situation a lot more fraught, you've never been able to get a full 100% thrilling success rate out of the United States interacting with Israel or Gaza, but the Palestinian cause is very, very passionate on the progressive left. That is part of Joe Biden's base. I said before, I don't think that this is something that will fracture Joe Biden's electability for this year. Do I think that it is a larger trend for the Democratic Party? Yeah. Do I think that they're going to have to make decisions as to exactly how close they are holding the progressive left or how close they are holding Israel? Quite possibly. I mean, we don't know how ugly this is going to get. But let me flip back to Ukraine for a second. Because with the eye of foreign affairs in Israel, we're starting to get a little bit more of a full spectrum reporting on Ukraine. And here's the reality. A lot of money has gone into that country and it's a stalemate. So how long will the United States continue to feed into Ukraine? And how much does Ukraine believe they can win? I mean, remember, Vladimir Zelensky has made it clear that his objectives are to take back Crimea. We're not even just talking about the Donbass. We're we're talking about Crimea. That does not appear to be happening right now. Funding for Ukraine is not popular with Republicans who control the chamber in the House. And it appears to be becoming less popular with with uh, Republicans in the Senate, despite the fact that Mitch McConnell has very much pledged himself to fund Ukraine. By the time you hear this, we might have movement on the $14 billion Israel funding bill that uh, has been put forward in the House, but that's been decoupled from Ukraine. What happens? Before next November, if within this calendar year, there is a bad outcome in Ukraine, how is Joe Biden looked at then? I don't think that he can afford to have that situation happen, but I also don't think that it would. My suspicion is there's going to have to be some kind of peace deal. But I think we might be at about that moment now. Be curious to see what that did to his approval rating. Right now, the spread is 15.4 on the negative side. Let's move off Joe Biden for now. Let's take a look at the Republican primary. Some interesting polling coming out of South Carolina. Obviously, the ascendancy right now is for Nikki Haley. And so far, she is seeing good results in her home state. The winning solution for Nikki Haley, if she were to actually make this a case, is to overperform in Iowa, overperform in North Carolina, uh, New Hampshire, yada, 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 Vegas, and then win South Carolina. That consolidates all of the never Trump vote. Uh, Hopefully everybody else has dropped out by that point. And Nikki Haley marches on to Super Tuesday. I don't think it's going to happen. That's what she wants in the most recent CNN poll taken between October 18th and 25th. Donald Trump continues to have a commanding lead. 53%. Nikki Haley is at 22%. She is over overperforming her real clear politics average. Ron DeSantis sits at double digits at 11%. And everything else is Tim Scott at six, Ramaswamy at one, Chris Christie at two, Pence at two. So this is pre-Pence dropout. But the number that you really are drawn to when you look at that is Tim Scott. Because when you take a look at all of the South Carolina polling, Washington Post, Fox Business, Winthrop. 
This is from early September leading in to October. He starts at 10, he goes to nine, and now he's pulled twice from two different firms at six. Tim Scott has the exact same strategy as Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley is at 22. We're at, what are you doing, my guy, time for Tim Scott? Because in his wildest dreams, he's got to win in South Carolina too. What in the fiddle ding dong do? All right. Take a look at your life right now, Tim. Take a look at your life. It doesn't look great. But obviously, we have a dropout. Finally, campaign undertaker has claimed Mike Pence. So where does Mike Pence's support go? Brand new economist YouGov poll, the first taken since Pence dropped out. Doug Burgum, zero. Asa Hutchinson at one. He's up one from their last poll. That's statistical noise. Tim Scott is at one. He lost one. He used to be at two. Uh, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Ramaswamy got a point. He went from five to six or sorry, from four to five. No one cares. What we really care about is his top three. And Nikki Haley really cares about Mike Pence dropping out because she is the likely endorsement recipient if she can prove that she is a worthy vessel. So what about Pence's voters? You know, small but mighty that they were. Nikki Haley earns one point compared to the last Economist YouGov poll. She is now at eight. Ron DeSantis moving up four points after Pence drops out. He is at 17. That's, you know, it's not pop champagne for Ron, <laughs> but is it uh, uh, maybe, maybe crack a beer? Take off your lift shoes? You know, let those dogs air out a little bit. Maybe that, 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 that's, that's a job well done poll for him. Obviously, Donald Trump is at 56. He is minus two. You really need DeSantis at least in the 30s for at least for, for this to be a serious conversation. And he does not get there by absorbing all the other also ran candidates. He would need more Trump support. He would need actual momentum. Not enough here to say that he has it, but hey, you know, take your good. Uh, if everybody's going to freak out because of Nikki Haley moving up and down two or three points, then Ron DeSantis, congratulations, Meatball. You you got a you got a four point boost there. Let's move into the general a little bit. I want to take a look at one state, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a must win for Scranton Joe Biden. It is the reason why Joe Biden has spent the, 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 the kind of time in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. He is going to very, very, very much rely on those states along with Wisconsin. Needs them. Can't win without them. Latest poll is by Franklin and Marshall, and it shows Joe Biden up two, but well within the margin of error at 4.1. Previous polls taken through late September and October had Trump up one, Trump up nine, Trump up two. The Real Clear Politics average has Trump at 1.6. As we talked to Evan Scrimshaw earlier this week, don't take these state polls incredibly seriously. But we're psychos. We're sickos. We like to watch them. I would like to keep an eye on it. Mostly, I want to just keep a directional eye on where the polls move relative to this race. Senator Casey, a Democrat, defending his seat against Dave McCormick. Dave McCormick, if you remember, ran in the Republican primary against Mehmet Oz. Mehmet Oz beat him by a very thin margin. And now Casey's going to have to defend his seat in an election year, presidential election year. 
with Donald Trump on the ballot. Where this goes for the presidency, I suspect it will probably track for the Senate. You are going to have high voter turnout on both sides. And as this starts, it looks good for the incumbent. Frank, uh, Franklin and Marshall has Casey at seven, but it is in line with other firms. Emerson had Casey at eight and Quinnipiac had Casey at six. So I would keep an eye. I don't think there's going to be a lot of daylight between McCormick and Trump. McCormick is a no must, no fuss good in front of the microphone, not a total lunatic Republican. Now, he's kind of from that era of uh, George W. Bush. He is a finance guy. He got attacked by Mehmet Oz for being too much of a bro from out of state carpetbagger. He's going to get hit with all that. Still, Donald Trump's going to be in that state a lot. McCormick's going to be in that state. They're going to be next to each other a ton. McCormick almost got the Trump endorsement in that primary. I think these are going to track together. And so I'm going to keep my eye on the movement of those polls because I do not believe that there is a, you know, eight point difference between Trump versus Biden and McCormick versus Casey. I think that they're going to be very close. And finally, let's take a look at the first polls that we have seen of what, as of now, will likely be the actual race. The graphics that you are going to see on your election night package. Donald Trump, the Republican nominee, Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee. RFK Jr., who is now running independent, and Cornell West. These are all people that are going to be there at the end. We do not know who the Libertarian candidate is, but we have three polls polling for that four-way race. All of them taken in October. Harvard Harris has Trump up seven. But they also have Kennedy getting 21% of the vote. They have Trump at 41, Biden at 34, Kennedy at uh, 21, West at three. USA Today Suffolk has both Trump and Biden at 37, Kennedy polls at 13, West at four. And the most recent, the Messenger Harris X poll has Trump winning by two, 40% for the Donald. 38 for Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., RFK Jr. at 18, and Cornell West at three. I do believe this is the thing you're going to have to watch, and it's going to be very, very interesting to see where Kennedy is polling at. I don't suspect he is going to get double digits by the time that election day rolls around. But if that does look more likely, then it very much is something to keep your eye out for. This is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you support this show. Go ahead. Get on that $3 level. For the price of a cup of coffee each and every week, you get two bonus episodes each and every week. One breaking down the Sunday talk shows and one that does the latest, the latest news that we cover during the week. And by the way, uh, there will be some guest hosts in October. And you're still going to get your bonus episodes. Those don't stop. Guest hosts are going to do the bonus episodes. It's going to be a good time. I'll tell you who the bonus guest hosts are. The one and only for me, the first ballot Hall of Famer, the greatest to ever do it. Tom Merritt. Is going to guest host one week and making his PX3 guest hosting debut. The cosmic Kevin Ryan. And he has a guest for, for that show that I would just like to hear them talk. If this guest comes through, it's going to be fantastic. 
There is a reason to support this show. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level. Get your two bonus episodes. Let's get into the news. U.S. Senators Chris Van Hollen and Richard Blumenthal have confirmed that preliminary talks are in progress for the establishment of a multinational peacekeeping force in Gaza. Now, it's a Gaza that would likely exist in the aftermath of Hamas. But it comes in the wake of the large scale military operation aimed at uprooting the political and terror organization. Of course, Hamas was democratically elected back in the aughts uh, for control of the Gaza Strip. They have not had an election since, but obviously they are also at the front of the military element of this. The operation by Israel has resulted, according to some, and look, it's resulted in what is being referred to as 8,000 deaths. Do we know that there are 8,000 deaths? No, we don't. And, and let me just say this. This goes for the IDF. This goes for anything controlled by Hamas. Please take any information with a grain of salt immediately. Please do not form really, really, really strident opinions. The fog of war is real. And both of these sides have been well known to play fast and loose with very, very emotionally charged information for the sake of playing the information war game. They both do it. I'm not saying never believe them. I'm saying take everything with a grain of salt. This initiative for a peacekeeping force has gained support in Congress. It could ease President Joe Biden's task of negotiating the formation of such a force with international partners. Secretary of State Antony Blinken indicated that the U.S. would prefer the Palestinian Authority take charge in Gaza post-Hamas, but also mentioned the possibility of another temporary arrangement involving international agencies. Both Israel and the United States have not agreed to a ceasefire, although there are talks of humanitarian pauses in the future. Ceasefire is the term being used by pro-Palestinian uh, protesters good luck uh, uh, there even if the United States was full throated for a ceasefire I don't know what Israel's move would be for their government for their military I don't believe they can internally stop until they feel that they have dismantled Hamas. So while the United States obviously is a key ally, if you just look at the reality of leadership inside Israel, I don't think they could survive. Certainly politically, <laughs> but I might, I, I may or may not mean physically without achieving the goal that they need to achieve. Things are tense right now inside Israel. The upcoming constitutional amendment on abortion in Ohio is shaping up to be a pivotal referendum on reproductive rights, eliciting high early voter turnout and drawing national attention. Both sides of this issue have launched significant outreach campaigns, transcending traditional ideological boundaries to connect with a diverse series of voting blocks. Prominent political figures and celebrities, including former President Barack Obama, Ohio native John Legend, have weighed in on the ballot measure, which seeks to enshrine abortion protections in the state's constitution. Current polling suggests that a majority of Ohioans are in favor, although Democrats remain cautious, emphasizing the importance of voter turnout. The language of the amendment has been a point of contention. The certified language from Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose's office differs from the initial proposal, leading to debates over terms like fetus versus unborn child. Democrats argue that the amendment would not significantly alter existing regulations on late-term abortions, citing Ohio's Department of Health data, while opponents express concerns about potential loopholes. The outcome of the referendum 
could have implications, not only setting the tone for abortion rights in a state that has been trending conservative, but also potentially influencing future ballot measures across the political spectrum in Ohio and beyond. As we've covered with this issue in the past, Ohio is unique in that it only takes a simple majority to amend its constitution. That was at the center of a fight that happened earlier this year. But you'd certainly get the sense that this is going to be more of a playground for Democrats in Ohio as the state becomes redder and redder to take issues that they do believe they can at least get a majority on in off year elections and turn out their people. And finally, tis the season for retirements with a year until the next election that will determine control of the House. This is normally when you see some folks take a look at their uh, look at their landscape and say, not today, Junior. So has been U.S. Representative Ken Buck from Colorado. He has won his last two races by uh, with the 60% vote share, but he says, no, you will not run. Representative Kay Granger of Texas also saying that she will not run. And both of them were Jim Jordan holdouts. They are some of the moderates that were nervous about their position. And it looks like they're still nervous about their position because they've decided not to run. Interesting. And that is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head on over there right now. Support the show. Sign up. Get bonus episodes. Three bucks a week. Cup of coffee, baby. Come on. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today has long covered the intersection between technology and politics. He is a reporter at The Messenger. He is the one, the only Eric Geller. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Joe Biden has an executive order on artificial intelligence. It is part of a wave of conversation around AI and government. There are similar conversations happening this week in the United Kingdom with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. But let's start here at home in D.C. What is in the Joe Biden executive order on AI? Well, it's one of the longest executive orders that I've ever read, uh, more than 100 pages, and it pretty much touches on AI from every angle you can imagine. So there's stuff in here about trying to avoid uh, racial bias in AI algorithms, uh, trying to protect the privacy of people's personal data when it's being used to train the AI algorithm. Um, the part I'm most focused on is the security aspect. So trying to understand how these algorithms can be used to either help us find problems out there on the internet that hackers are going to try to exploit or trying to stop these hackers from using AI themselves. And I just had a story out a few days ago about how uh, we're going to see a lot more phishing attacks and they're going to get a lot smarter and they're going to get a lot harder to detect because of AI and how it can train itself to understand what would make you tick, what would make you click. So uh, AI has a lot of uh, possibilities for us on the defense side, but this executive order is really about saying, let's get every government agency thinking about how we can stop AI from making these problems worse. 100 pages. It feels like something I need to reduce on chat GPT. <laughs> Just give me that. Give me that. Give me the executive summary in one page. Holy moly. That's that's a lot, especially considering. Uh, look, AI is an emerging field. A, pe a lot of people forget that we are only a year into the introduction of chat GPT. Uh, uh, and that really is where I think the public met uh, a lot of these functionalities in my mind, as somebody who follows this pretty closely, uh, uh, I still don't exactly know where the, the, uh, levers of government should be pushed to, to make this, uh, uh, you know, regulatable. It seems very interesting that we have a hundred pages of the federal government saying we know exactly where we're going to be putting our weight. But that also makes me think maybe this is a lot of, 
hoping and wishing and guiding and not a lot of hard and fast rules that would affect this industry. So it's a lot of what you see in many uh, executive orders, especially on emerging technology issues, which is, yeah, let's create task forces. Let's create study groups. Let's let's create guidance documents, not regulations, but let's lay that foundation so that in the future we can turn this into mandates. And that's what you see in here. There's stuff in here about best practices and guidance. And eventually that's going to become rules. But for now, they're easing into it with sort of, OK, here's what you should be doing doing. Here's the best practices. By the way, down the road, we're going to make you do this stuff. Let's talk about how involved these AI companies have been, because from my perspective, as somebody who's followed politics for so long, but also covered technology, there has been this rolling understanding pretty much since Microsoft's antitrust back in the late 90s, where the thought was from Microsoft at that point, we don't need to play in politics, whatever, we're tech, this doesn't matter. They get bit by the antitrust. And ever since then, every company that has come along through Silicon Valley, that has come along through the tech sphere, has been more involved in politics than the generation before. And I would say, from my perspective, the AI companies, many of which are uh, uh, tied in or f- uh, being uh, emerging from a lot of the the uh, big companies like Google, uh, OpenAI, obviously nearly half owned by Microsoft. They are very aware of where things are politically. They have been very active. They have been uh, uh, upfront about suggesting we do need regulation. Can we please be a part of this conversation? Uh, what has the reaction from the AI companies been thus far? You you hear a lot of we're generally happy with the direction this is going, but we want you to like think carefully about the regulation piece. So everybody wants to have that photo op with the president where they're at the table and they can go to their customers and their shareholders and say, we yeah. are being responsible, right? I mean, uh, there was an anecdote about how Biden apparently is is worried about AI risks because he saw the Mission Impossible movie where an AI destroys a submarine. No company wants to be seen as the the object of those fears or the realization of those fears. Nobody wants to be seen as the guy that makes the product that brings that to life. So everybody wants to be seen as the good guy in this conversation. And especially when you have the president saying, I'm terrified that this is an existential risk. Nobody wants to be on the other side of that. But you have to balance that because if you say, go ahead, Biden, regulate me into oblivion, it's going to be much harder to develop cutting edge algorithms that can keep you ahead of the other companies. And then why do you exist anymore if the other companies are moving ahead of you? So it is that balancing act. And we are, from your perspective as somebody that follows the industry, we are in a pretty nascent phase still with AI, right? Like like we, we, we don't even know who the major players are necessarily going to be in five years. Right, exactly. And part of the issue is because it's still pretty expensive to run some of these extremely powerful AI models. A lot of the players, especially in like the cybercrime ecosystem, do not yet have yeah. the ability to just do this whenever they want. As that changes, everybody is telling me when I when I ask about cybersecurity and AI, wait until it gets cheaper that anybody can do it. That's when we really see where this technology can go. Uh, describe for v- people who don't don't follow this when you say everybody can do it what specifically do you mean so in order to train these systems to feed them the data and get them to sort of learn and figure out how to spit out useful information you have to run them on usually you know cloud computing infrastructure from Amazon and Google and just run them over and over again much like an accelerated version of, of teaching a kid to read you've got to train yeah. them over and over that takes computing power that is not something that everybody has access to so it isn't just about knowing how to do it it's also having the resources to do it now obviously that's changing storage is getting cheaper all the time that is still however a barrier to a lot of players in this space that's why you only see a relative handful of companies producing these big popular models like chat gpt it's because that is not still something that anybody in their mom's basement can do now but that is going to change and and that's when we start to see what happens when it's not these eight companies with generally pretty responsible visions for ai what happens when anybody can say i wonder if ai could do this and then they can just go do it and that's still we're sort of on the cusp of that at this point and it, just to point out to people, like you said, there's a reason why 
Microsoft invested very heavily in OpenAI. They run the Azure platform that has the cloud computing ability for them to run these gigantic, massive, ridiculously powerful models that are very, very, very expensive. Anthropic, another company that was formed with a bunch of early OpenAI employees, they made a deal with Amazon. Amazon runs AWS, which essentially is the cement of the Internet in terms of cloud computing. They are a huge player there. Google has had a gigantic uh, resource in cloud computing, and they are obviously a big player in AI. A lot of early AI research came out of Google. I wonder exactly how that timeline goes of this getting to the the kind of quote unquote street level uh cyber crime and and or even in in that middle class level of all right you have known crime syndicates that are trying everything that they possibly can uh, uh when they get you know <laughs> crime gpt <laughs> that that can that can run these pretty sophisticated uh uh attacks and we're I should say we're already seeing some of that. There are two uh, versions of ChatGPT uh, that are already uh, spreading on the, the dark web called Fraud GPT and oh, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Worm GPT. And basically they help you create phishing emails. They help you create fake profiles. They help you make this easier. A lot of it is just now automating. I want to hack a healthcare company. What kind of email yeah. do I have to write to get them to click that link? So that is already happening to some degree. Oh, so they are just using best practices on uh, uh, social engineering to make sure that the one and and for for folks who are not aware of this lovely part of our modern society, if you get a sent a link that's called phishing uh, and you click on that link, then you can own a computer. uh, uh, And at that point, people will lock out. And in this situation, it's hospitals or hospital systems that now they are locked out of their, their, their systems. They have to either pay a ransom or hopefully they have backed up everything that they need so they can begin to rebuild. In fact, we just saw something like this in, in a more colorful and less depressing setting uh, uh, with Caesars in Vegas, right? Absolutely. And reading the, the the stories about what it was like to walk through those casinos after that ransomware attack, where all the ATMs and all the slot machines are just displaying these weird error messages and the, the restaurant workers are having to do orders, like just writing them out manually because their cash machines aren't working. I mean, it's incredible when you think about how something can go from clicking one link to that. But that is what happened. And we're, we still haven't caught up with like thinking about risk and danger in that way. And AI is going to make it worse. It's going to make that easier to do. And people don't, people are not trained to spot regular phishing emails consistently. So what happens when the emails get smarter and more convincing? And that is something that this executive order is trying to grapple with is how do we prevent AI models from being abused in that way? I hope it kills email. (laughs) <laughs> at least in, at least in terms of business email, like I feel like like maybe that that's that's the 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 idea of this is that, no, you want to know what email is haunted tech. We're, we're, we're going to move into something else that is more of a uh, uh, there's there's some layer in between. So so those kinds of things can just not make it like unless unless this was absolutely sent from a trusted source to a trusted source. When it comes to business information, you're just not allowed to open it. Personally, I think that I would prefer to only get PDFs delivered to me by a courier holding a flash drive. I don't want emails with PDFs in them anymore. I just don't. I I prefer not to trust that. If a man in a nice like livery could just walk up to my door and hand me a flash drive with a PDF, I'd feel much safer. There we go. I think we bring back 90s bike messengers, just uh, just dudes with backwards hat uh, uh, riding through the city and bringing PDFs to the the Eric Gellers of the world. Now, across the pond, Rishi Sunak is holding his own AI uh, summit. Is there any sense between what you read in the executive order and what is being talked about over there that that seems to be the overlap of governments, the big interest in this emerging technology? Is it crime or is it something else? I think it's partly crime, but I will say outside of the U.S., particularly in the European Union, a lot of it is about algorithmic bias and trying to prevent these algorithms from being used for things like redlining. You do see cybersecurity as part of the conversation, but certainly I have heard about this much more in that other context of these algorithms are going to be used to make decisions. Let's make sure they are not 
being trained on data that is already inherently biased. Um, one thing I should say about the UK summit is this is taking place in the context of a lot of other European countries moving much faster than the US, much faster than the UK. So uh, France and Germany, for example, are not going to send high level representatives to this meeting because they're kind of frustrated that the US and the UK are trying to slow walk the regulation piece of this. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how oh, the companies want to oh. move slower. Oh, so so I mean, it, not shocking that France and Germany are say, are, are rushing to make a rule before uh, uh, anything else. But they are frustrated that that this is going too slow. That we should be already regulating. There there already should be rules around AI. Yeah, they see this as like studying the problem when we kind of already know enough about the problem to act. And I think the UK and the US are certainly saying, let's slow down a little bit. Let's meet with the private sector and figure out what's realistic here. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, uh, hat tip to my my our French and, and German cousins over there. But uh, I don't know. I'd like to read the journals that they're reading uh, if, if they feel like they have a handle on exactly what's going on with this, because this is this is a field that has. I think the rubber literally has just met met, met the road. We we don't know where this is going to grow. Uh, and, and I think we're still separating you know, you use that Biden example. We're, we're still separating our myths from our realities on this. Uh, and I don't blame us because it is such an advanced tech. But our storytelling that we've told about machines, which resurfaces whenever a new cool thing can be done with a machine, uh, it's it's very much here now. You, you, the, the fact that, that the American president is worried about it destroying a sub and, and not regulating out the concept of a doctor shows us how far we are from what this is actually looking what what this can actually do right now, which is very powerful. And I would say very disruptive, potentially. Uh, and stories we've told about computers that go crazy. It reminds me of Reagan watching uh, war games and and getting worried about the consequences of uh, a, a, a nuclear disaster. Or, I mean, there have been similar movies about sort of early like hacker conspiracies and disasters. Yeah. And the reality is that is not the most likely scenario. The most likely scenario is you're a doctor and you get an email saying, here's that invoice and you open it. And all of a sudden your entire <laughs> hospital is crippled by ransomware and you can't do CAT scans or MRIs. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's I mean, and and I do think uh, to me, one of the biggest areas that we should be on the lookout for AI regulation is around specialized industries, including medicine and the law, because right now we are in a situation where less and less people have general practitioners. Uh, it is hard to get regular medical care. And there is a free program on the Internet that if you ask it medical questions, it will give you generalized medical advice. Is it the best thing? Should you run your entire life on it? Probably not. Is it there 24 seven? And is it far more efficacious than WebMD? Yes, it is. And I do think that it is something that will continue to become more and more of a part of our landscape. Same with generalized legal advice or thoughts on various different contracts. These are things that lawyers have made a lot of money for a very, very long time. Many lawyers become politicians. Many doctors become politicians. I think that to me is the biggest area where we will see a, a, a very well-funded lobby say we need rules around what AI can and cannot do in the public sector with that kind of advice, in my yeah. opinion. Especially because a lot of people are still pretty uncomfortable trusting AI for those things. I mean, it's sort of like the autonomous car debate. It's, you know, it could be safer to put a computer in charge of a car. We certainly see a lot of driver and pedestrian deaths because people are bad at driving cars. But yep. do we trust the computer to do it for us? I mean, wasn't there a lawyer who was like, I'm looking for a client to represent on like a minor legal dispute so that I can use an AI to like argue the case for me? And then I think the court was like, you're not allowed to do that or something. And he had to back down and be like, OK, just kidding. Like, I was just joking on Twitter. I mean, people still don't trust systems that they can't understand from A to Z how they work, especially for things like keeping them out of prison. Well, sure. And and obviously, 
if your lawyer that you are paying a lot of money to is getting his uh, legal advice from chat GPT, then you have a much larger problem. You are in Barry Zuckercorn territory uh, uh, when it when it comes to your legal counsel. But if you're just looking at a contract that somebody sends you and and you say, hey, point out uh, all, all of the issues in this contract, is it going to be materially different than you finding a lawyer that your friend recommends to you and, and getting and charging two hundred dollars? Maybe, you know, I, I got sick. I mean, this is. A, a seasonal illness uh, uh, time. I feel like globally we've finally had the the rubber band snap back from the lack of flu that we had during lockdown. Everybody I know is getting. I've gotten sick twice this year, but it's it's helped to have a, a resource that I can talk to twenty four seven to just give me generalized advice on flu and respiratory illnesses in in, in a way that. I don't have to worry about it being gamified by SEO uh, like like WebMD or other uh, uh, blog resources have been. It's I don't know. I think we are we're in an interesting position where like I did not I did not expect in a year for me to generally trust this technology in the way that I've come to generally trust this technology. So I think one cool use for it in healthcare would be just like an AI program called What is this rash? And you just upload a picture. <laughs> yeah. What is this rash? And and if you give it enough pictures of rashes and you link those pictures to like actual human diagnoses, I don't see yeah. why it couldn't tell you what that rash is. I I did some uh, consulting work for for OpenAI a couple months ago where I was just interviewing people uh, for various different use cases. And one of the dude uh, that I interviewed he is a very well-renowned uh, uh, expert, not only in medicine, but also in, in AI. And he said that the biggest thing that ChatGPT has that is superior to a human doctor is that human doctors are trained from the very earliest days in medical school that when you hear hoofbeats across the horizon, think horses, not unicorns. Uh, because 90 times out of a hundred, it's not the crazy thing that it, that, you know, is on the edge case. It's probably something more, uh, mundane and you are just missing a part of this diagnosis. Look deeper into it to figure out that it is a, a mundane thing. Chat GPT doesn't have that. And, and you've seen edge case scenarios of very rare disease diseases being surfaced by chat GPT because chat GPT is like, well, I don't know if it's these things, then you should check for this extraordinarily rare neurological disorder. And, and it's been right. And that is only something that surfaces. If you have the wide scale availability, if you have the, the, the concept of everybody being able to use it, for free. And that's that's another element of this is just that the, the democratization of knowledge is extraordinarily powerful. And this ties back to the EO because uh, we talked about sort of algorithmic bias. If you are, let's say, a black woman and you're using this healthcare diagnosis platform, it might give you the wrong information because it might not be trained on enough health experiences from black women. We already know that this is a problem with human doctors. They misdiagnose things because yeah. they don't have enough patients who have particular situations. So you want to make sure that AI is is trained on a wide array of people so that it is not telling you that something is the case when in reality, that's probably not true for you. <laughs> And that gets us into another very interesting question, which is as fascinating as large language models are, they are not magic. They are just prediction machines. It is just saying, okay, well, based on one word, what is the next word that comes after this? And they get smarter and smarter and smarter. But we don't know exactly how they work. And trying to regulate out bias from a system that we don't exactly know from point A to point B, from request to result, exactly how it is getting that because it is such a complex prediction machine. That to me seems 
like a hard uh, uh, a hard mountain to climb in terms of understanding exactly how the bias is in there and how you can help make it better. Right. You're not you're not prying open the machine and saying, oh, that's what's going on. I will just change A, B and C and that will fix my problem. You're doing trial and error. You're you're changing things that you think might be the reason. And hopefully you get to the end result that you want. But you don't have control over the process. And that sort of raw psychological unease about not being able to control the whole thing is why we're in this situation where we even have to debate how do we regulate this? It's why it's so scary, because Humans like to control things, especially when we rely on those things for life and death. And when we can't control them, we end up here. Where do you think the uh, the, the, the the pathway forward is on this in terms of uh, government's relationship to AI? So I think they're starting from a pretty reasonable place, which is they're having the sort of technical experts in the government create guidelines for, okay, how are you going to test your AI to make sure it's safe? And we're not going to tell you exactly what you have to do, but here are some ideas. Here are some guidelines. And the companies yeah. are probably going to take that and use it because, again, going back to the public perception question, nobody wants to be the CEO who says, I'm going to say, screw you, government. We're not listening to you. We're doing our own thing, especially if all your colleagues are listening to the government advice. So the companies yeah. will test their programs. They'll use this government advice. It will become the standard. And over time, we'll work out the problems that crop up because we have sort of one way of doing things. We don't have 18 different companies testing their products in 18 different ways. So I think we're starting from a good place, which is understanding that the government does not have the monopoly on technical expertise, but it does have people who spend their careers studying this stuff and they can be a source of advice to the industry. So right now, the relationship between the players in AI and government seems pretty functional. We are we are not in a, a adversarial uh, uh, place, at least as of now. That's right, because people who are coming into the AI industry have probably done other tech companies in the past. They have experience with the sometimes adversarial relationship with the government. They know when it works and when it doesn't. So they're coming into this with an understanding of maybe we should start off trying to work together instead of as adversaries. And so far, we're not seeing too many examples of that kind of falling apart. So far, everybody wants to look like they're on the same page. What would you say the most adversarial tech relationship is with the government? Is it social media? Is there anything worse than that? I think between I think social media and the congressional Republicans probably have the most adversarial relationship right now. I mean, you know, I'll tell you what, I, I, this is uh, off off AI uh, for a second. Are you surprised that the TikTok stuff went nowhere? Because there was a moment when when that was really, really heating up a couple months ago where you didn't have a whole lot of allies. Uh, it was the, the 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 Democrats that were upset with TikTok. The Republicans were upset with TikTok. Everybody had a different thing to be to be mad about. But it looks like TikTok has survived at least that push for some kind of, uh, uh, you know, over the top punishment. Are you are you surprised that that happened? I'm not because it's it's hard to sort of take something out of society once it's become so popular, particularly with the youngest demographic that is increasingly playing a role in elections. Uh, I would not underestimate the teen lobby. I think the, the children of a lot of these policymakers are saying, what are you doing? You're, you're crazy. This is how I get my news. Maybe that's not super healthy, but I think that's the reason why we're here. <laughs> I think that's, but that's the reason why you would, you would look to ban it. Because, and, and that was the reason why I was like, look, normally I bet on inaction. It's the government. It doesn't normally move very, very fast. But the fact that you had both parties aligned, normally what happens with these things is they slow down because one party's really, really pumped about a thing. The other party wants to throw sand in the gears. That was not the case here. Both parties really, really hated the idea of TikTok. And then normally you see a push by the industry that this uh, company is from to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Except... All of the other companies that were in that industry of social media, like Facebook and Google and everybody else were like, damn, it's crazy. These commies run this uh, massive platform. Maybe we really should regulate them because they know that that audience was all going to go to YouTube shorts, to uh, uh, Instagram reels. So I don't know. I, I uh, there, There's just something weird about it. There's too many 
adversaries for me to think that TikTok is safe. But I, I, I was interested to see that they seem to have weathered it and, and nobody seems to continue to be banging the drum that TikTok needs to be drubbed out of American society. I will say watch for that story to come back if we see the sort of China Taiwan tensions rise again. I think that gives people in in the Senate in particular where a lot of this has been focused. That gives them a chance to say, "Hey, we're all scared of China again. Has anybody thought about banning TikTok recently?" I guess, you know, the fact that that our foreign policy has been so squarely focused on first Europe, now the Middle East means that we have not thought as much about China, but I guess we're always one warship away uh, uh, near the coast of Taiwan from that changing. Uh, uh, all right. Well, as far as tech and government, uh, Eric, you do great work there uh, at The Messenger. What else is uh, on your radar for people to pay attention to? So uh, I also write a lot about how the government is trying to protect all the infrastructure that we rely on every day. So like our energy grid, our water systems. And there have been some spicy debates about how to do this uh, between industry and government. I think this is a sleeper issue. A lot of our hospitals, our schools are really poorly protected from hackers. There are very few rules for what they have to do to protect themselves. They don't have a lot of money to do this. So I'm watching this pretty closely. How can the government help them while also establishing, again, basic standards? standards uh, to make sure that they do the right thing to keep those hackers away. Do you have any kind of round number on how much is spent on ransomware in America per year or or uh, on, on, on some kind of uh, general ongoing basis? I know that it's in the I would say the, you know, uh, hundreds of millions globally. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not it's a problem that's getting worse because attackers see that it's easy to do. And again, going back to those schools have to stay open. Those hospitals have to stay open. If they have an, a cyber insurance plan that will help them pay that ransom, they will probably pay that ransom. That casino needs to stay open. Yeah, I hope the last time that we saw each other was at DEF CON. And that I know in in the hacker circles that that I uh, uh, hang out in. Uh, they were all really worried that this was going to affect DEFCON's relationship with Las Vegas, because in general, Las Vegas always they have a lot of weird people come in and out. They're the, the convention capital of America. They normally tolerate everything. But the casinos get a little wary when the hackers come to town. And the fact that there was such a big disruption and I, there's no proof that it came from DEFCON. It, it seems like that would be. A, a bad thing, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the deaf God people would not want to, uh, you know, poop where they eat per se. But uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly hope that that's not proven going forward, but, but it was not only uh, the uh, MGM, right? It was, it was another casino that wound up paying. Yeah. Caesar's uh, paid. The, the I ransom. believe. Yeah. Caesar's right. paid. Yeah. Oh boy. And, and Vegas is such an interesting that is a ripe, ripe target for social engineering because it is in a lot of ways. There was a crazy story in Vegas, not cyber related, just an old fashioned. Uh, they targeted the right woman who worked at one of the cages in downtown Las Vegas. And just because that's such a weird town where capricious owners of casinos will will actually on a regular basis call down to their cages and say, hey, I need half a million dollars in a bag. Put it in a bag for me. I'm going to come pick it up. It was just I think it was like the Mexican mob or something that was just doing that. They did it like three times with like three different casinos and nobody uh, uh, you know, uh, blinked an eye. So a ripe target for social engineering there in Sin City. I mean, Las Vegas is just a lawless land in so many ways. That you can, you can just get away with anything. <laughs> Certainly is. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, so much uh, for joining us with the one, the only Eric Geller of The Messenger. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, X at Eric Geller uh, or on Blue Sky. Just search for Eric Geller. And yeah, if you if you just Google Eric Geller, The Messenger, you'll see my stories. Oh, yeah. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Thank you. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to support this program, 
You can do so at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. More on that in a second. If you want to thank Eric Geller for coming on the show, you can do so. PX3Guest.com. Letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. Email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is px3tweets for the show. Justin R. Young for me. Find me live on Twitch, px3live.com. And you can support this podcast, px3podcast.com. If you would like to support the program with a one-time donation, a little value for value, as they say on the streets, paypal.me slash payjury if you are on PayPal. And we don't talk about the value for value thing, but I do very much believe in it. If you've listened to this show and you think that I've added value to your life, if there's ever been a moment where you felt informed about politics in a way you otherwise wouldn't have, if you have dared which I encourage to take one of my takes and just repeat it as your own. Well, I love that. And you are allowed to do that as much as you would like. But also, if you have a buck in Venmo, Justin-Young-20, that's how you give me a buck. And just tell me which take you've lifted off me. I'd love to hear it. On Cash App, it is PX3Cash. Whenever you repeat a take, say you want to know one? Eh, buck a take. Throw me a buck. Send me anything you'd like physically in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. You can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Like I mentioned earlier, $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. But it's at our Titanic $10 tier that gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks. Ye old Pinball Shop, John, DP4 Bongo, Sam, J-O-N, John, Edwin, Kathy Mack, and Book Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checkers, Sarah Jeannie, Matthew, Dr. G, Neil Pat. Neil, Neil, not his last name, because we don't read last names. I don't want to dox you. Unless you want me to dox you, then just email me and I'll dox you. His nerdiness, Charles, Darren, Idris Arslanian, Berkeley Steven, Nomadic Terran, Molly's delightful demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, D Laser, Nick, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Jen, D, really? Chopper, Andrew, Adam L., and my mother, Gloria. Hi, Mom. My mom didn't know that I shaved. I shaved. I don't have a beard anymore. She texted me. She said, did you shave your beard? And I said, yes. Let me see if I can get this right. This is what my mom texted me. My mom texted me. That's odd, but that's you. Love you, Mom. We have an odd week next week. And to be totally honest with you, I don't know for sure how it is going to go, except for this. There will be a truncated episode emanating from London that will recap the Virginia election and the Kentucky election. That is election day that officially marks us at one year until the big show. And with that, I will take probably the only break I will take (laughs) for all of 2024, because I'm going to be working hard for you. I Do not know what our coverage is going to be for the debate. I suspect there will be something. I will do the Patreon bonus stuff. But uh, other than that, guest hosts start the week after that. That'll be it. Till next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying... Politics, 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 politics.
Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.